Sleeping Beauty is a huge one. I mean, this girl is literally going to lie in this bed in a tower until she turns to dust, until the prince gets it together and comes to kiss her because she's so gorgeous, right? Yeah. So, so thank goodness Sleeping for beauty. beauty. Could you imagine if you didn't have that? <laughs> what kind of damsel right. you'd be? Right. Right. So if she was sleeping, not beauty, I mean, like, would anybody show up for her? I, I don't know. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. The damsel in distress is a classic trope that typically places a female character in danger so that the hero can save the day. Picture Lois Lane trapped in the helicopter hanging off the edge of the Daily Planet building, or Mary Jane Watson frequently used as bait because the villain always knew Spider-Man would come and save her. While these are all fictional stories, stories tend to reflect or influence the real world around us. Author Bibiana Kral returns to the podcast to discuss this trope, how it impacts everyone, and the ways we can de-stress the damsel role. So you're telling me you're meeting with your film director? What was that about? Yeah, well, we we meet every week. We're co-writing a novel together and it's being developed into a feature film. So um, it's it's really interesting. I've co-written before, but I've never co-written this way where literally the, the first draft isn't even fully drafted and we're doing you know, paragraph or scene edits and that kind of stuff together over the phone. And we're using Google Docs so we can do it in real time together. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really different. It's really interesting. At first, it was really hard for me because I'm used to being by myself, working by myself, working alone. And and then when everything's it, at least doesn't make me sick to my stomach, then I share it with someone who to look at it, you know? Yeah. So so sometimes when I'm really not super thrilled about, you know, what I wrote last week or whatever, I always kind of feel like that little kid with like the hair sticking up, getting school pictures, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, uh. <laughs> you're forced to share an incomplete project with someone else because right. hopefully we'll help make it better together. Right. And it's painful. I mean, it really feels like somebody's got your hand like in the drawer and they're like squeezing it closed sometimes because you're like god this feels so uncomfortable <laughs> is but it faster to have two heads no actually it's longer okay. so I'm thinking that in the future as we're actually looking at doing projects until basically I have my viking funeral so you know this is uh, we're probably going to do a novel a year and we've got a film to follow it so I mean like for the rest of my life wow um yeah there are 82 projects to be developed so um I'm not going to live that long I hope to god I don't live that long but um but anyway what I'm going to suggest in the next one is that uh we do a um 
a whole chapter and um, make sure everybody's sort of on bar with with the chapter. I do a chapter, they do a chapter and back and forth and we have an agreed upon, you know, format of how we're going to reach the arc and make the conclusion and all that kind of stuff, you know, so we have it broken down a little bit before we start, but, and then spend a month, you know, like 50 pages at a time or whatever, doing hardcore and then somebody gets to edit and somebody gets the line edit and then the editor gets it. Wow. Now, when you are in the initial drafting stages, is is that when you try to catch the stylistic differences between both of you so that they kind of read as one similar voice? Or do you catch that in later drafts? Um, well, this is this is the first time I've ever done anything quite like this. But what I've realized is that the story itself, as the characters sort of really started developing, I would say in chapter two, it started kind of creating its own style. So it's it's really weird. It's it's a hybrid between the two of us, and it sort of uh, it it sort of activated on its own. That's cool. That's awesome. So I'm glad that you were able to take some of some time away from your very busy schedule to join me again on Speculative Sandbox. Um, there's you know we have some regular listeners who probably already remember you from our Ghost Stories episode. But for those that are just tuning in, can you uh, introduce yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Bibiana Krall. I'm a, a novelist, short story writer, and a poet. And I am working on my 28th title, which is coming out September 5th. So I'm pretty excited. That's exciting. We are talking about damsels in distress. Specifically, I'm calling it de-stressing the damsel. At what point in your life, uh, both of us being women and kind of being influenced by pop culture growing up, at what point did you realize that damsel in distress was a thing? Um, Like a thing thing. I think for me, it was probably when I was about 10 or 11 years old and I had a, um, I had sort of a, a feeling in my mind that if I was going to live life on my own terms, I was going to have to learn to save myself, mm-hmm. learn to take care of myself and, and to rely on myself first. And so as I was reading, you know, sort of the, the MG and why I didn't really exist in the form it does now when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, but uh, there were stories that kind of matched that, that tempo. And a lot of them had, you know, the, the damsel in distress or somebody's going to save me kind of themes in them because at least girls my age back then read things that were more romantically inclined, I think. Um, but, but that's about when I, I think I was, I was pretty young, you know, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, I would say Disney is probably my first exposure to damsel in distress tropes because you have Sleeping Beauty and Snow right. White and uh, well, Cinderella. Yeah, the prince had to come and kind of help her out in the originals mm-hmm. when she was locked up. Um, I was very fortunate to have some very strong characters offset that in my youth. Uh, Xena Warrior Princess was a huge influence on me. My own mother um, was a huge influence because she had you know left Vietnam on her like on her not technically on her own. She had to use the systems to work for her to, so that she could escape and then um, embarked on her own essentially. And she's always had a fiercely independent spirit. So I, I'm, 
fortunate to have had that exposure because I kept finding the damsel in distress or the did uh, in so many places. And at the same time, I was also exposed to uh, the expectation that my father has to be the one to solve the problems or sit back and let <laughs> the guys figure it out and very subtle nuances of life. And I realized how much fiction and reality kind of overlap. How would you define the damsel in distress trope? What are some classic examples? Um, well, you know, I, I uh, looked some things up to sort of see if the general uh, Google, Google Audi you know, felt the same way as I did. And, and you know, they, they, they kind of do. I mean, for me, certainly uh, Sleeping Beauty is a huge one. I mean, this girl is literally going to lie in this bed in a tower until she turns to dust, until the prince gets it together and comes to kiss her because she's so gorgeous, right? Yeah. So, so. Thank goodness Sleeping for beauty. beauty. Could you imagine if you didn't have that? <laughs> what kind of damsel right. you'd be? Right. So if she was sleeping, not beauty, I mean, like, would anybody show up for her? I, I don't know. <laughs> we won't tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe we should. Maybe that would actually be a, a way to start sort of pulling this, this apart, even though, you know, I, I loved the fairy tales as a girl of, you know, the, the beautiful girl like uh, Rapunzel, you know. She gets thrown up in a tower because she's like so gorgeous and has this fantastic hair. Mm-hmm. And then some, you know, some weirdo dude shows up and wants to climb her braid. Like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was always like, why couldn't she just climb down her own hair? And she probably could right. have. Right. Or cut her hair off, tied it to the leg of a chair and climbed down and said, bye, dad. Bye, everybody. I'm out of here. I mean, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I went jump back into history a little bit because I wanted to see where, where were some other classic examples besides the fairy tales that I loved to read growing up. Um, some of them I saw on TV and cartoons, the woman tied to the train tracks, the classic, you know, damsel. Um, and then even in Greek mythology, we ha- I found Perseus slays a beast to get to Andromeda, who is chained naked to a rock. A lot of women in very vulnerable situations in Greek mythology. And then mm-hmm. um, propaganda, allied propaganda during World War I portrayed German-occupied Belgium as a damsel in distress, transforming allied soldiers into knights bent on saving their victim, which was the city. So a lot of portrayals. How do you feel about this trope? Like, What would you find to be like, the most problematic? I, well, for me, what the real problem is, I mean, if you really, really boil it down, at least from my my philosophy, the way I live my life, is that there's a, a long-standing myth uh, that is completely off-chart, off-base, that women are weak, that women need to be saved. They don't. And, uh, you know, a strong woman, a woman who knows what she wants, a woman who has enough wisdom to realize also what she needs chooses their partner chooses which way they go down a path they don't just lay down on train tracks and wait for some cowboy to ride maybe randomly through this valley to come pull her off the train tracks Mm -hmm. so you know my real problem is is that it 
goes hand in hand with uh, women as, as trophies, women as objects, women as something to be won or something to sort of keep in the vault, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's really problematic because it really feeds into a very old fashioned idea that women are not in the same league mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever, as men. And I, I have a real problem with it. Yeah, I, I agree. I felt that impact a lot on my own capabilities growing up. Um, right. The, the feeling and expectation that that's how women are naturally portrayed. Therefore, that mm -hmm. must be all that's an accurate representation of you. All the men in the movies represent what men want to be and how they see themselves. So therefore, by proxy, I assume that the female characters are the same girlfriend roles that are constantly needing to be saved oh the the concept of fridging the girlfriend uh which i believe originated in a nightwing comic where he comes home and he finds the girlfriend in the in the fridge she was died or in the freezer or something whatever she oh. died cut up and placed yeah. in there and that was supposed to be the motives for him moving forward and so we have so many examples of fridging the girlfriend i commonly see them and i'm like no we fridged another one uh right what I realized was as I started seeing more proactive women, I remember thinking, oh, you could actually do that. And I think that helped empower me in my own life to kind of step forward and go, no, these are my feelings and my thoughts. And they just have as, as much of an equal ground as the, the men around me. Absolutely. Do you think we've done a good job moving away from the damsel in distress trope today? Um, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. Well, you know, here's the thing is, is that I'm not going to say how someone else feels is wrong. You know, I'm not, I, I try not to judge on people, however they want to view things, as long as it's not infringing on my, you know, personal space or whatever that, you know, that's cool. But on the other hand, I guess the real problem is, is for me, the idea that if, any of us are sitting around waiting to be saved by someone else. What we're really doing is shelving our own power and giving it to someone else, some random person, some random stranger. And what that does is it, in fact, really cripples us in the moment and keeps us from moving forward into whatever it is that we most desire. Maybe we should be doing in the first place. So we're waiting around for some phantom that may or may not ever show up and and you know that bothers me i also think about the weight that places on male the male role where sure. guys are having to be responsible for their roles and if there's a constant expectation to carry the weight of let's say the entire family or you know someone other than himself that's a lot to carry and i feel like over time that there's not there's naturally there's going to be resentments um, that sure. come out of that. And so uh, at the same time, being able to break through the gender roles where being like what maybe it's a, a undue trying to think, undue pressure on men to carry excess responsibility, but it's become so normalized that to them it might be strange to offset some of that responsibility and they might see it as a failure of their own role um, when really it's just a very difficult system for many people to exist under and the point of it is how can someone have their own autonomy in their own life 
Yeah, you know, I think I think there is. Uh, oh, sorry about that. No, you're fine. Um, I think there's. I think there's a lot of pressure on both sides. I think there's pressure from. Well, if if we go away from gender, we'll just say the the passive role versus the dominant role, regardless of you know how whatever else is going on, uh, in your life, personal wise. You know, there's in in relationships, there's give and take, and you have somebody who maybe is more passive day to day and then will stand up for something that's really important to them. Um, and then you have someone who's kind of dominates the the daily choices or whatever, and then gives up on the weekends and says, you make those decisions. But I think it's the real, the real issue with these, these tropes that basically are very ingrained in, you know, these, these passive sort of, you know, you figure it out, you take care of it, whatever it does, as you said, it puts an extraordinary amount of pressure on whoever that dominant decision-making, you know, person is. And if they choose wrong, what happens? Are they absolutely crushed because they didn't make the right decision, but the other person was just like, oh, you figure it out. Oh, you do it. You know, you're this, you're that. And so I think both sides, it, you know, and I can't speak for everyone, but I'm looking at it that way. I would imagine that both sides of this coin are tired of this trope for totally different reasons. But on the other hand, I do appreciate, at least in the most basic kind of sense, the romanticism of, of that sort of um, like swooping in magic that someone can somehow have ESP and know you're on the train tracks and, and they ride a million miles to come save you. I mean, that stuff's really cool. But boiling it all down, though, it feels troublesome from an expectation standpoint. And it's scary, too. I mean, we have these stories that we have developed a mythology of uh-huh. you'll be OK. Someone will come in and save you, putting complete and utter trust in whatever that authority figure you know is dominant figure is but then you enter the real world and there's so many flaws in the system and we can even think about like um, your own safety walking home like you know being taking the bus public transport Um, it's really important as a woman to be proactive in your own safety as well because maybe even the things that you rely on for safety might fail you and um, mm-hmm. I, I, I always just think I don't really know where I'm going with that. <laughs> you know, I agree with you, though. I agree with you. You know, for instance, like, you know, uh, next week I'm going to the mountains and I'm going to be in a, in a wilderness area, like really wild, like bears, panthers, who knows? And uh, am I relying on my husband or am I relying on local people to tell me what I might encounter or to tell me to be smart enough to bring you know uh, something warm to wear maybe some um, extra strength pain medicine in case I sprain my ankle or whatever I do all of that on my own and the reason I do all of that on my own is I have learned in my life that if I can depend on myself I can't control anything else or any you know any situation but what I can do is at least be in the knowledge that I have done my best to be prepared which also makes me feel more ready for that next level of preparedness 
which includes, you know, villains, extraterrestrials landing, you know, <laughs> whatever other problem happens in 2022. I'm, I'm running out of ideas of what else could happen. But I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. sort of feeling prepared, even if you're not totally 100% prepared, makes you feel more actively engaged with um, your strength when you need it. Yeah, I, I agree. I might get hate for this, but there's a contemporary fantasy romance series uh, by Sarah J. Moss, I believe is her, is her name, called A Court of Thorns and Roses. It is uh -huh. a Beauty and the Beast retelling. So you've got Stockholm Syndrome and everything. It's your classic, uh, yeah, damsel in distress situation where she's locked up by this beast. In this case, it's a girl, a woman that is captive, held captive by this fairy prince. And I read a couple of books. I mean, I found it. I mean, it's it's got erotica. And of course, that's going to be great, too. There's tons of moments and times for that. And I enjoyed the books for those fantasy elements. But one thing that I really had a hard time with was the passive female role for a majority of the books when she is uh, controlled by these male characters. And the only way she was able to escape the first what ended up becoming an abusive boyfriend was when another future boyfriend saved her whisked her off and then she falls in love with him in a different place <laughs> you're slapping your head <laughs> i am i know i'm gobsmacking myself oh my goodness well i i can't speak to the series because i haven't read it um i have heard about it though i have heard about it that it that was terrific and you know and it, it rang a lot of bells and all of that but oh my god you know uh, all i can say is is that if that's what you like, that's totally cool. But from from my perspective as a woman, as a writer, uh, as someone who has been living life on their own terms for a really long time, what I would say is is how, as a, a woman writer, can my stories serve the generation that will hopefully be reading my books, you know, after my Viking funeral and is that one I want to leave for them from this, this perspective? No. And if it's what you want to do, that's also cool. But I really feel like we have this opportunity to talk to people that we will never meet. And do I want to tell them that an ex-boyfriend from the future is who they have to wait for? Oh, dear God, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think in real life, it's, it's one of those things where you aren't, if you're constantly relying on someone else to save you, you aren't forming your own identity. And right. you think about a lot of situations where people actually take advantage of people who are in bad situations and there's grooming and conditioning involved. And uh, obviously these books are, are written to be light and fun and entertainment. And like you said, there are people like, enjoy your kinks. Absolutely. <laughs> right. But, like whatever you're into. Right. Exactly. I, I think another example where when I was trying to think, have we done a good job moving away from the damsel in distress trip? Black Widow in Marvel Cinematic Universe. She's so like clearly filmed from from a sexualized perspective even though she's supposed to be an empowering character you've got butt shots after butt shots she's got this gorgeous yeah. figure and most of the time they're body doubles and i'm not saying she's, she's gorgeous of course uh but you have dewy-eyed uh fantasy type 
lines and facial expressions. There's nothing. She's not a problem to anybody. She's perfectly, you know, along for the ride. And then when the Black Widow movie came out, or actually I wouldn't say Endgame, you started to see more complexities in human. You didn't see this dewy-eyed character all the time. And I really, and that's when I started going, yes, sisters, you know, we're here together. And um, I, I think that's good. Uh, but from the start, even though it was like she was disguised as a strong character, but I just remember thinking she's impossible to exist. I'm not sure if I would say that she's impossible to exist per se. I mean, I have, I actually have met those com that combination where you really? get like the beauty, the bombshell beauty, and then you get the sort of like, you know, a little bit of grit underneath that dewy, gorgeous skin. It's a rare combination, but it's it's a lethal one because nobody knows what to do with that person, right? But um, you know, I think I think we all have a long way to go in the portrayal of the strong character. And you know, then there's the overcompensating aspects where you have like, you know, Wonder Woman who could just ping metal until the end of time with her bracelets and and she can get all the truth out of you with her invisible rope and you know, like so that's that's almost the other extreme mm -hmm. where they're loyal and they're gorgeous and they they know things and they they can do you know martial arts and fly invisible airplanes and I mean I think that's wonderful and that also is to me you know a fantasy but what I'd like to really see is is a um a damsel who is not in distress, but a damsel who actually is strong enough to show that she needs things and that she has this human factor to her, but in the face of adversity or in the face of making choices, she's not deferring to other people, she's making her own. And that's the character that I want to see more of that I think would scare a lot of people, but I think that character is the character that needs to come forth. I haven't seen it yet, but there's a movie called Prey, I believe, that just came out. It's like an yeah. origin story for Predator, and it has a female character that I think is in a circumstance, and she's able to protect herself or fight off the monster. This is me just going off of quick summaries, but I know that it's been an interesting discussion online about her as far as how people perceive her, and it does seem like... Um, there's a pit like a lot of people are undermining this character's capabilities, comparing her to to like if a bunch of men came in with their guns blazing, how is it that she was able to take on the monster? And so like there's all this doubt that people are trying to like attack her by. But I feel like it's an, it's just interesting how that kind of character can be perceived so threatening when it's I don't know, it's it's a, it's a good example of strength to be able to overcome these things and take on like I guess she was a bow and arrows and like classic kind of materials no guns anyway I don't... yeah yeah definitely and you know the I I think it's really interesting that people would attack a character like that but then if you flipped it and made that a male character like you watch we'll say a James Bond and I love James Bond I just love him because he's just exactly who he is you know what you're gonna get and you he always has at least you know, two chicks before he starts blowing things up. You know, I just love James Bond because he's fun. Mm -hmm. But I don't take it too seriously. I don't say, oh, you know, so I don't look at him in a political sense or a feministic sense. I'm just like, to me, that's 
pure entertainment. But when you start picking apart, though, uh, we'll say uh, an adventure story or a thriller, and the super brain, super capable person that's a spy or whatever that can take down a whole, you know, corrupt country or group of people or whatever. When it's a woman, the woman has to be like from, you know, graduated from MIT and have a PhD in like, you know, weaponry or whatever. Whereas if it's a guy, it could just be a really good looking guy who grew up on an English estate or whatever. And he happens to have a couple million dollars. And mm. so he's automatic. So it feels like even in these imaginary like roles, if it's a female and they are doing exactly the same thing, you know, we're just changing it male to female. The female has to be 300 times more gifted, more educated, more everything. And, and that, that feels to me also like a, it's, it's perpetuating some of these issues because if we feel like it's the same monster but you need to be 300 times stronger to tackle that monster if you're a female. Like, what is that really saying about mm -hmm. the people writing it, the people consuming it? Like, you know, we are literally drinking the Kool-Aid. What did you, speaking of James Bond, what do you think of Bond girls and their, how they're portrayed over the years? <laughs> well, you know, Bond girls, in my opinion, they, they could be seen two different ways. Bond girls, you know, obviously they're objectified. I mean, we've got a lot of skin. We always have them ending up in bed somewhere with James, right? Mm -hmm. We got them coming out of the water. We've got them showing up in casinos and, you know, all of that. And to me, that's the fantasy aspect of, um, you know, sort of the Ian Fleming era when we had, you know, men who were men and, and men who were going to, be sure that the war ended and the Nazis were gone. And, you know, so I, I, that whole sort of really strong masculinity thing, it kind of makes me laugh because in real life, I mean, seriously, how many people have you met that, you know, look like a Bond girl? And so to me, that's, that's like hardcore male fantasy. And it always kind of makes me giggle. Um, but on the other hand, often, if you go a little deeper, which, you know, they never do actually in the film, at least they tend not to, um, the woman has all of these skills. She's a negotiator or she's, you know, she works for some crime syndicate and, and she's like a mastermind and, or she's, she survived all of these, you know, traumas in her life. And now she's ensnaring James, you know, so I love the fact that none of these females who look absolutely just ravishing and amazing, that all of these women are just, they're sirens. They're like super smart, super dangerous, super everything. So, you know, of course, James would be attracted to them. Who wouldn't be? They're like, you know, shiny diamonds, just like laying right in front of you, you know, like, wow. But I do feel like it does objectify women. But for some reason in James Bond, I always forgive it. I don't, I can't even really explain that myself. So I don't know. What do you feel about the Bond girls? 
I haven't watched the most. Well, I did actually. I did. I watched a little bit of the most recent one with Ana de Armas. Armas. I hope I'm saying it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she. I saw the first half of the movie, and she seemed very empowered. Like she was showing up to things and and fighting people and everything. And I was like, that's that's pretty great. Um, I think it's when you know. I think just the lore of James Bond, that what what makes him such a stud, aside from being able to take on the enemy and a lot of you know their henchmen is that he's a ladies man and he's able to uh, be with gorgeous women and and that is such a fantasy but I guess when you know the women end up dying horrible deaths as while they are helping him I think a good example of this is it's the one with when he goes on an island with her and it was the guy from no country for old men right oh yeah it was the it was the one before this one was it the, it was i uh, know actually with this one know. with anna de armas it it is the one with the island that that blows up no it's the one where they go i think they go to the island where this super villain lives it's the um i should probably just look it up that's the beauty of podcasts you can just <laughs> edit <laughs> james bond movies let's see javier bardem it is skyfall Somewhere. Oh, Skyfall. Yeah. They go to Javier Bardem's lair, which I thought was on an island, and she ends up being um, working for them too or something like that. And they mm-hmm. chain her up to a rock and shoot her. And she's just hanging dead in the background. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I think she even helped James and just became, you know, all right, well, we're done with her. Moving on. I think when characters are treated yeah. like that and it's based solely on like their gender roles and what they need to jo- James as an object to literally use, that's a bit hard to swallow, I guess. <laughs> now yeah, I'm curious. Right. You know, that was upsetting. I, I'm thinking about it now and I I remember that particular scene and I was like, yeah, it is upsetting because these, these uh, fights or these, you know, battles that, that James has with these bad guys, you're right. The woman just becomes basically a unwanted piece of furniture at that point. And it's, it is upsetting. You're right. Yeah. So I guess it, um, it, it's still a gray area and, but there are, there have been some great examples where they've inverted the trope to, into something more empowering. Uh, I've seen a lot more, women superheroes especially taking center stage in the mcu right now uh women saving themselves most recently layla in moon knight i really liked that because at one point she's on a ledge in a cave and the main character um the moon knight character is off somewhere else dealing with his own demons and she i almost thought this was one of those scenes where she's in trouble and he's going to swoop in and save her and nope she ends up saving herself and it's foreshadowing for later when she becomes a superhero herself i really liked that And then you have women-centric stories like Pixar's Turning Red, which examines the coming-of-age story of a girl. And we learn about hormonal changes, periods, body odor, uh, confusing sexual attractions. That's that's one of the things I find. I was so relieved to see that because we are surrounded by female sexualization everywhere. But I was raised where, and and of course, Turning Red has an Asian-American angle to it, and I am Asian-American, to be ashamed of of sex and any sex acts is something that my mom was like so conservative about and it's weird for me growing up to see women hypersexualized and then told do not do that you are a slut you know if you do that 
So being able right. to have them actually address that where the main character in Turning Red feels shame for having a crush on the boy at the corner store. Um, I thought that was really uh, important to examine. You know, like looking at looking at more recent things, actually, last night, I didn't realize that Lock and Key was back on Netflix. And um, I started watching it and the mom, I can't think of her name, but the mom actually took on two demons, uh, didn't shed a tear and thought on her feet and was just, I mean, she was really, really rocking it and dispatched them and didn't even break a sweat, which is probably not super realistic, obviously. But on the other hand, she started the mom, in my opinion, in the first season as kind of this weak sort of mousy person who was lost and didn't know where she was. And she was always kind of uncomfortable with herself as a, as a woman who maybe wanted to have some romantic uh, interest and, you know, all this other stuff. So she kind of started in season one as sort of this gentle, weepy kind of person. And last night, I mean, in the second show, she was kicking demons ass by herself and not waiting for anybody to come help her. So I appreciate growth like that. But I also appreciate the fact that you can uh, take a character like that who's really kind of demure and a little bit wishy-washy other than like the gentle, you know, like the whole mild-mannered female kind of drives me nuts a little bit too I mean like any female I know it's not always mild-mannered you know like mm -hmm. hello life so it's nice to see characters that get mad sometimes and or that are you know happy and accept themselves the way they are as you were saying about the um the new Pixar show you know where whatever it is that goes on with yourself as you're growing up with your own body is part of your experience and it's nothing to be ashamed of it's you as a human being embracing your humanity so but I was just really really happy to see that because the only character that I really connected with um the first two seasons was the the evil villain Dodge because I was like I get what this chick is doing you know she's got her mission she's got her moment and um, she's going to do whatever it takes to get there. And that's okay if you're a villain, right? That That's true. Where sometimes the villainous role is the one to, where it feels like it's acceptable to have those wants and needs. What do you think of criticisms towards uh, strong female characters where they, they claim it's pandering? What are your, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, well, who who did they? Who are they pandering to? I guess is my first question. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, I I think a really good example of where I think people were so split on it was in Endgame, where all the females were together and carrying the the what is it the gauntlet or something, and it just seemed like a pandering shot, and people really got stuck on it a little bit, claiming what is and what is real representation. Well, you know, they, I, I, what I'm going to say is this, is, is that for thousands of years, uh, storytelling has been pandering to men. 
So if we're going to pander, how about we send a little love towards my section? Nicely said. Okay. Um, let's see. What advice do you have for writers who want to be more thoughtful or turn the damsel in distress trope on its head? Um, I think the best way to turn the trope on its head is to think in your mind who are the strongest you know, women that you know. And when you take the strongest women that you know, write down what it is that makes them strong in your mind. Like what are the, what is it that makes them strong? Can they lift 300 pounds? Um, are they, you know, do they always have a witty comeback when somebody says something cruel? Uh, you know, like write all those things down and put those in the blender and really think about them and be mindful when you're empowering your characters, your fictional characters, be mindful that you're not actually saying, oh, well, they're not strong enough, so I'm going to give them a sword. Oh, they're not strong enough, so I'm going to give them a PhD. Oh my gosh, to me, that would be pandering because what you're not doing is you're not developing them in a way that they would be realistic to the people who need to hear from them. So, and, you know, of course you can have a sword and a PhD. I, you know, I mean, why not? Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying that if you use strong characteristics of a human being and you put them in the crayon box and pretend like it's like a silk scarf or a belt, you know, I call BS on that. My next question might be a little interesting. When is a damsel in distress character appropriate to the story? <laughs> Well, it's funny that you say that because <laughs> I just finished uh, writing a story a couple of months ago, actually, a short story where there is, a, I would say, you know, kind of oblivious person thinking they're doing whatever. And then you have aggressor, aggressor. Well, all of all of these players are female and so you have the devious female, you have the, the female with something to gain, and then you have the female who's not listening to her, her gut, who's not listening to her intuition, and guess what happens? Mm. So the damsel in distress in this particular story is being used as a, a mirror or a reflection of the... Um, really what I would consider the over-dramatized villain. And it's kind of fun because it feels like you're sort of doing shots of tequila, you know, you're like, which one, which you're, your head swiveling. And, and I did it on purpose. I did it for a reason. Um, but, you know, sometimes the damsel in distress, if they're offset with a villain who's of the same sex, who potentially could even have the same sort of, I uh, will say, virtues or non-virtues, what you get is a, a really beautiful reflection, perhaps, of society, the things that need to go, um, society, the things that could perhaps improve it if you took A, B, C. So, and, you know, you don't want to not entertain people in a story, so you don't want to make it glaringly obvious you don't want to you know just drown them with all of that kind of stuff but if you can put some of those little glints of detail in those 
uh, in those scenes between those two, I think what happens in your subconscious is your brain starts really separating, you know, the noodles from the vegetables. We'll mm. just put it that way. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this discussion. Um, it was very enlightening. Do you have any last remarks or promotions? I well, it's thank you for having me again. It was so terrific. I mean, we went from ghosts to damsels in distress. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And and I guess, you know, if anybody's in the mood for Halloween stories, I, my story, my anthology with Veronica Coyne Barton, uh, Wicked Mist is coming out September 5th and it's our third year and we are potentially pitching it as a streaming series in a couple of months and knocking on wood and um you know we'll see what happens speculative sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on tiktok instagram and twitter interested in being in a future episode our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.